Okay. Now I feel even more uncomfortable. Thank you, Ben. I mean, the biggest miracle, to be honest, is the fact that I can actually climb the two steps onto the stage this morning. But I'm quite proud because I can still squat, can still use my legs at the age of 45. Yes, still got it. Anyway, as Ben mentioned this morning, we're going to talk about grace. But I just wanted to share a few things that I've learned in life. I've learned many things over the years. The biggest learning phase I went through, I think, was probably approximately 11 years ago until today. And that's basically due to my kids. It's been my steepest learning curve ever. Because before you have kids, you think you're sorted. You think... You, you're okay with life, you can cope with life, you, you've got it sussed, you've got it worked out. You know how to sleep, you know how to eat when you want, you know how, how to have what you want when you want. And then children come along and it just blows all of that out the water. And they've got different ways of communicating that and, and you learn the different stages that you go through. And the first stage is very much the non-verbal stage where they just scream and cry at you. And you play that lottery of trying to work out every possible solution to stop them crying. And eventually you get there. But by the time you get there, they've reached a new stage. Now, the new stage, I can obviously only speak for my children. If your children are different, I apologize. But this is what I've learned about mine, is they go to the why stage. Now, the why stage, there's a few groans, is everything is why. Can I have a biscuit? No. Why? Can I watch TV? No. Why? Can I go out to play? Yes. Why? No, that still doesn't work. But they go through a why stage. They want to understand everything. And they want to know the reason behind. And you, you, you have that balance of, do I just say that, that, that phrase that psychologists tell you you should never say to a child, because I said so. There's huge discussion about whether you should actually say that or whether that traumatizes your child so much that they will be scarred for the rest of their life. And then we entered a new stage, past the why stage, of how. How does that work? And one of our children in particular loves to know everything about how everything works, which means we invested financially in those how things work books. And I'm not going to lie, it's still on the bookshelf. It's about this thick, he doesn't look at it, he just comes to, he, she, it could be a she. They, they just come to us and say, how does that work, mummy? How, how is electricity produced? How does it get to our house? How does the maple syrup get in the tree? How does that happen? There's lots of questions. If anyone's got any answers, feel free to speak to me at the end. But then we move on from the, from the non-verbal, the why, the how. We move on to the, what does that mean? And it's said with a little bit of, not attitude, but it's definitely said with a bit of intent. And you think you know things as an adult. You soon realize you know very little when they ask, what does that actually mean, mummy? And we were watching, did one of those sort of family movie nights probably about a year ago, and we chose to watch Matilda. Now, I'm not standing on the stage advocating Matilda because it's not for everyone, okay? Our kids loved it. We're listening to the first song, the new, the new musical version. They're loving it, getting into it. 
Bearing in mind, Tim, the other week told you all about how our kids have selective hearing at times. They're not the only ones in the house. Oof. I'm guilty of it as well. You all judged me then, didn't you? You all judged me. I'm guilty of selective hearing as well. Now, we're getting to the end of the first song in Matilda. And the penultimate line in the first song has now haunted me significantly. And I'll read you what the line is. Please, if you want the context, go and watch the film. But it says, Mum says, I'm a good case for population control. <sighs> now, a certain, at that stage, six-year-old in our house who, how we pick that up out of the entire song, or she, or she, <laughs> how they pick that up out of the entire song, I've got no idea, but the next question was, Mummy, what does that mean? What's population control? Now, I did GCSE geography. I even did A-level geography. I thought I knew I could, how to explain this. I've done the case studies. I've seen the the policies that governments try to impose. I've, I've, I've done it. So I start to explain what population control is to a certain six-year-old. And what happened then was a flow of regressing back to different stages because we suddenly went into the how stage and the why stage when I'm trying to explain what population control is. It's really difficult to explain population control without covering those bases for a six-year-old. So I did what every responsible parent would do and I went, why don't you ask Miss Bloor on Monday morning? <laughs> Now, Miss Bloor, and I have spoken to her about this, is lovely. And she really, really appreciated me doing that because apparently they spent the entire morning in year two discussing population control. So thank God for Miss Bloor, and let's pray for her every day as she has to deal with my kids. But it did start to get me thinking about how we explain things. And, and every day being a school day, how do we look at things and describe things and understand things? And as we've mentioned this morning, we're going to talk about grace. And we all nod. And we go, yes, grace. What actually is grace? Because we all say it. Yes, God's grace. Fantastic. But what actually does it look like? What does it mean to have God's grace, to receive God's grace? What does that actually look like for me or for you or for us as a church? And so I went to, I did what every, um, married to an academic, you, you, learn the, you learn the things to do, you go to the dictionary. And I went to the dictionary and the definitions went along the lines of elegance or beauty of form, manner, motion or action, a pleasing or attractive quality. I went, What? What does that mean? In my mind, that's just like, let's fluff it up a bit more because I don't quite know what it means. But if I use more words to describe it, nobody will know. But I've got your dictionary.com. That doesn't answer it, in my opinion. It doesn't really hit the spot, especially when we view, and, and some of us may know that actually grace is at the very core of who God is. So how can we use such small, limited number of words to describe something so vast? So then, you know, I looked into the Bible 
um, which is the second place or the first place, probably the first place I'm standing on the stage, first place, not dictionary.com, Bible, go to first. I went to the Bible and I'm reading about when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God walks past and Moses says, he says, and the Lord passed by him, Moses, and Moses proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Who believes that this morning about God? That is God. And then you read later on in the, the Bible and Moses sort of echoes the... Uh, Sorry, David echoes the words of Moses and he says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. How good is God? Even at the mountaintop yesterday, God is good. Even at the valley at the bottom, God was good. Even going up... And encouraging young people to come up, God is still good. No matter where you are, he is good. And both of the, the book of Psalms and the book of Exodus are both written in Hebrew. And so well, what, what words, obviously they've got different words to us in English. And the word they use in the Hebrew for grace is chen. I've been practicing my Hebrew pronunciation. You have to cough basically when you say it. And that basically means favor, to delight. It means that the giver delights in the person that is receiving. This morning, know that God delights in you. It doesn't matter what you do, God delights in you. You don't have to do anything because he delights in you. And then you go through the rest of the Bible, and actually the second part of the Bible is written in a completely different language to the first part, just to confuse us all completely, and then we've translated it into English, which makes it even more difficult. But the New Testament's written in Greek, and the word they use in Greek is charis, which basically means gift. So we've got a gift that is given to us because the person favours us and delights in us. And I'm like, how do you bring all that together? And then you've got what the world thinks grace is, which actually I don't see how that definition even fits with what it truly is. So what I did was I came up with my own definition because I thought that was the simplest way. And this is what it means to me. And I'm hoping this morning that I can explain why. I was walking to school the other day with three children. One of them says to me, Mummy, how do you get quoted And I thought, that's a great question. I said, basically, someone just says what you said. So he's going around now trying to say that everything that he says is quoted. But I'll let you quote this. You don't need to tag me in. But this is the conclusion that I've come to of what grace is. That grace is a gift of a scarlet rope that hangs from the window of heaven to our hearts through which God pours out an abundance of his gifts. The reason I've come up with that, we'll go through shortly. But just hold on to that this morning. Hold on to that scarlet thread as we go through. And we're going to start with Ephesians, if that's okay. We've got Ephesians 2 from the message. And it says, now God has us where he wants us. With all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. 
All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. We, if we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. We've got a father who saves us. Now, Rob mentioned last week in his preach, he talked about gifts. He talked about different ways we can express our love to each other. And one of those um, we, he mentioned was, was gifts and the giving of gifts. Hint. <coughs> no. The giving of gifts. And that's fantastic. And when we understand that in this culture, in our Western way of living, we understand that gifts are given specifically, usually for a reason, and they're given very much freely. You don't expect anything in return. You know, as a child, I do remember having to write thank you cards um, which was a sort of task two days after your birthday, had to get the thank you cards written. But we receive under no cultural obligation to actually do anything. But different cultures have different ways of approaching gifts and, and giving and receiving. And over the years, I've had the opportunity to travel a bit, and I love going to see different cultures and learning. It absolutely fascinates me and it blesses me so much going to see what other people, how other people live their lives and what they do and what's important. And one of these travelling times, I got to go to the country of Uzbekistan. Has anyone been there? No. It was recently in the Times newspaper as one of those places apparently you should visit. It's huge in culture, history. We think we've got history. Their history is even further back than ours. And I thought, before you all go booking your plane tickets, I'd give you a bit of insight into the culture um, of Uzbekistan, just so you are prepared when you go. So here you go. Here's what you should be aware of. People from Uzbekistan are called Uzbeks. Okay? So Uzbeks take pleasure in giving and receiving gifts. Inexpensive gifts do not have to be wrapped, while expensive ones should be. When meeting with senior government officials, just in case it ever happens, avoid giving gifts such as pencils, pens, lighters, unless they're expensive ones, poor quality wine or vodka, paper, notebooks, or other items of this nature. It's considered bad luck to give a pregnant woman a baby gift until after her baby has been born. When giving flowers, it's important to give them in odd numbers. In greetings, handshakes are only acceptable between men. In greeting of Uzbek women, you have to place your hand on your heart and you bow your head. And don't be surprised if you aren't thanked for the gifts that you receive, because gifts are considered evidence of God's grace more than your generosity. So if you ever go to Uzbekistan, they've got a very different culture on giving of gifts. And if we think about it, when Paul wrote what he wrote in Ephesians, he was writing it in a very different time to now, and he was writing it in a very different culture to now. And in that culture, 
people were very much focused on shame, honor, esteem, sort of trying to build themselves up, you know, keeping other people down. There was a lot of that going on in biblical times. And when gifts were given in biblical times, it was usually to your benefit. So you would give a gift specifically to someone so it benefited you. Okay, it was very much about your esteem and it was also very specific. You wouldn't just randomly give a gift to someone. You would specifically give it so that you could benefit from it. And it would form a bond between you and the recipient. And that would be intentional because you would want that bond because it would benefit you. So when we talk about God giving gifts, that's not the way that Paul was talking about giving gifts. Paul was saying that God's way of giving gifts is very much different to that. Because the first thing is that grace is a gift for everybody. It's a gift for absolutely all. It's not so specific. God's not doing deals with us so that he can benefit. He's doing it so that we can benefit. He's doing it regardless of status. His grace is a gift for all. And if we think about it, when God gives gifts, the scales are completely unbalanced. We have a God up here on a seesaw, if you think about it, who is lavish, abundant, never-ending, more than enough. And then we have us down here, who we're not worthy of the gifts. We haven't done anything to deserve what he's given us. When he died on the cross, we didn't do anything to deserve that, but he gave it graciously and do you know what God reaches down and he grabs us out of the pits that we may feel we're in and he pulls us up not only does he pull us up because he's so gracious it doesn't end there he adopts us into his family and he says do you know what come on son and daughter let's go let's walk together And every time we find ourselves in that pit again, he doesn't do what most of us parents, or maybe it's just me that does, that goes, this again. He actually goes, it's okay. Let me pull you up. Let's start again. Let's go again. And he keeps going with us. You see, it's not, grace isn't a cause and effect relationship. It's so hard to... For our brains, I've come to the conclusion to understand because we like it all formulaic. Maybe that's me, but it's like if I do this plus that, you get this. That's not how grace works. There's no formula to grace. There isn't a formula for God's grace. It's defined by a relationship with a loving father who gives good gifts that in reality we don't deserve. And as I've mentioned, you know, the cultural uh, way of giving gifts back in Paul's time, he was completely countercultural in what he was saying. But there is one thing that I do believe God wants to establish a bond and a relationship with us that when he gives us a gift. You see, he gives grace without conditions. But I do believe that there is an expectation. And I believe that because of what Paul writes at the end of Ephesians in chapter 2. He says to join him, Jesus, God, in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better get on doing. You see, God wants that relationship. He wants to join us. He wants us to be together. 
The second thing is, grace is manifest individually. Have you ever received a gift that you didn't ask for, that you didn't expect, but it demonstrated perfectly that that person got you and knew you? I have, just to reassure you all. Tim gave me an engagement ring, which I've got to be honest, at the time, wasn't expecting. He, he is aware of this. Really wasn't expecting the engagement ring. And it did take me back. But the ring he bought me, I look at it and I think, he so gets me. And it wouldn't be for everyone the style of ring that I've got, because it's quite simple, really. It's not, it, that's not a negative, but that's the sort of thing that I'd like. It, there's a simplicity to it. There's clean lines on it. It's just straightforward. For me, something wonderfully ornate and faffy wouldn't suit my character. But when I receive a gift that demonstrates someone knows exactly who I am, it's even more of a blessing. And grace is very much like that. We may receive it at the time and we may not fully understand what it is at the time or why we've received it or where it's going to take us. But God knows and he recognizes the significance. You see, the lyrics of Amazing Grace, which was written by John Newton, he was, he was into slavery, t shipping slaves off to America. He had his life turned around by a shipwreck and he called out to God and it took him seven years to then train as a priest. He said basically, God, if you save me, your, my life is yours and you can do as you please. But you see, he wrote, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And we need sometimes to have our eyes open to see God's grace. And I truly believe God's grace runs through the Bible from, from the Garden of Eden through to the Garden of Gethsemane and way beyond. And I just want to take a moment to consider one person that I believe demonstrates God's grace. And that's Rahab, the prostitute. In the book of Joshua, if you don't know the story, it's in Joshua 2, and I'm going to give you a very quick highlight of the story. Basically, they want to take the city of Jericho, the Israelite nation do, so Joshua sends in a couple of spies to basically say, go and look out, see what the, see what the walls are like, see what the soldiers are like, and they end up knocking on Rahab's door. Rahab is a Canaanite complete enemy of the Israelites and not only that but she's a prostitute which would have been you know it's like the lowest of the low for the Israelites and basically the soldiers who were hunting down the spies come to Rahab's door and say give them up and she goes don't know what you're talking about don't know they've left they've gone they went off that way really she'd hidden them on her roof and then she goes, once it's safe, she goes to the spies and she recounts the stories that she's heard of the Israelites, the victories in their battles. And she says, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. And then before the spies leave, they say to Rahab, okay, Thank you for saving our lives. Thank you for helping us. What should we do? What can we do for you? And she's, she wants to be saved. She doesn't want to die. 
So they say, okay, leave a, a red scarlet rope hanging down from your window and on the day of battle, we will know that you and anyone else in your house will be saved that day. So that's what she does. She says, I accept your terms, she replied, and she went, sent them on their way, leaving, their scarlet rope, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. You see, Rahab received God's grace in the form of two spies. She probably didn't know it at the time, but she will have known it by the end of her life. And often, we just need to adjust the lens through which we look at life to see God's grace. We just need to stop a moment and go, actually, how has God graced me in my life? It wasn't until recently, and I went to the opticians, and I came out with having to wear glasses all the time. But it wasn't until I'd been to the opticians and tested, and he'd given me, you know, they put those really weird, like huge glasses on you, and they is it better with this or this? And you spend ages, and you can't, if you're anything like me, you can't remember what the first one looked like by the time the second lens goes in. And then I, I'm overthinking it at this point and thinking the optician just wants the next customer in. But it's not until you actually get the right lens in that you realize actually you can start to see again. And that's how we need to approach, that's how we need to approach life often. Because God had a plan for Rahab. He had a plan, not just for the now, but for the future too. He knew exactly what was needed and when. And all Rahab had to do was trust. And then the third thing to say about grace is that actually grace is for the benefit of the whole. You see, this is the thing about grace. It feels like it's full of paradoxes, like it's individual, but I'm now saying it's for the whole. But the fact is you can receive it individually, but it is for the benefit of the whole. Because when you're great, receive God's grace and you're part of the church, the church is blessed because of that. And actually we become bigger and stronger because of God's grace that you're receiving individually. Because if you're receiving, I'm receiving. If I'm receiving, you're receiving, and together it starts to grow. And the thing is, it's not just about the people and us sat in here now. You see, there's whole communities and workplaces out there that need to know God's grace. If you've ever worked in any workplace doesn't matter where, you will have to demonstrate grace to your work colleagues at some time. Even, controversially, working for church, you still have to show God's grace. Nobody's exempt. And our stories of grace will often, which we don't fully realize, echo across generations because we'll live in the benefit because the source of God's grace is the fact that he's everlasting. So he doesn't just work in one time frame. He's working across generational time frames. So just to let you know, if you didn't know, Rahab survived the battle. She survived the battle of Jericho as promised. And as I was preparing today, I just really felt that somebody needs to know that God, the fulfillment of God's promises are based on his grace, 
not what you're doing. So it doesn't matter what you're doing and the promises that you may have received from God because actually the fulfillment of those is going to come because of God's grace. So all you need to keep doing is keep focusing and trusting in God and who he is and he'll grace you with the rest. He'll fulfill those promises that you've been holding on to. And if we go back to Joshua, in Joshua 6, 23, it says, The men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. Because Rahab received God's grace, others were saved too. And then it goes on. It doesn't end there because it then goes on to say, so Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. This wasn't just a one-hit thing. They not only saved her, but she lived with the Israelite nation until she died. She lived in the blessing of a safe space, in the blessing of a community. When you're graced, the community benefits. We benefit as a church. And then, to be honest, you jump through several hundred years in the, in the Bible and you get to Matthew. Now, you're probably thinking at this point, well, what has Matthew got to do with Rahab? Because he's Jewish, she was Canaanite, she was a prostitute, there's several hundred years ahead. How does that all fit? And let's consider who Matthew was. For anyone who doesn't know, he wrote the book of Matthew in the Bible, named it after himself, love that. But he wrote his book, but he was a Jew, but he was a tax collector. He neither fitted with the Jewish people, really, or the Roman people. He was, again, a social outcast. He, he wasn't 100% comfortable. But, you see, Matthew starts his book with a family tree. Matthew starts his book with what we refer to as the genealogy. And in that culture and at that time, a genealogy would have been one of those things that actually esteemed the family name. It built them up. It showed them the great endeavors and successes they'd done. It would have focused on the highs. But you see, Matthew was a different person. Matthew wrote about the realities of family life. And I love the fact he included them in the genealogy of Jesus because it shows me that actually it doesn't matter about my family past, the highs and the lows. I'm not restricted by them. I'm not even restricted by the highs, which so often we think, oh yeah, that's, that's the mountaintop. That's not the mountaintop. You see, Matthew back, bucks cultural norms and he actually brings those realities in. But the other way he does it is he actually brings women into the genealogy, which was like, you don't do that. You focus on the men in that culture. And that's where we find her. We find Rahab the Canaanite prostitute in the family tree of Emmanuel. And it says in Matthew 1 verse 5, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother 
was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. You see, not only did Rahab escape the battle and live in the blessing, but she married. They had a child together who was Boaz, a product of grace almost. And anyone that, if you know um, the story of Ruth in the Bible, Boaz demonstrates a huge amount of grace to Ruth and they marry. And together they have their son, Obed. And from there you get to David. And from there you can keep going all the way to Jesus. You see, the scarlet rope runs all the way through. It runs all the way through to Jesus himself when he died on that cross. And he gave us the gift of salvation. He gave us that gift that we didn't deserve, but he bent down and he pulled us out. You see, the grace of God is for all. It crosses social boundaries. How it looks for you is different to how it looks for me because we're different people. But together, it's for community. Together, it builds this church. It builds his church. So grace is a gift for all. It manifests itself individually but it's for the benefit of the whole. We have so much to be thankful for. I can't imagine how Rahab felt the day she let down that rope. But I do know that she declared that God was the God above all gods. And she trusted in that. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to pray. And I'm just going to pray that today, those that need to receive God's grace can receive it. Those that want a refreshing from God can be refreshed. So Father God, I thank you that you are a gracious God. That there is no end to your grace. That you give us what we need when we need it. And Lord, that you'd never leave us. That you are Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we each reflect on what it is that your grace is in our lives, that actually you will open our eyes to see afresh today. You will open our hearts to receive more of you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.